turn now to our text for today, which comes from the book of Luke, the opening words of Luke, Luke 1, 1 through 4. hear the word of God. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have, have have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Beloved in the Lord, the opening of the book of Luke is is in a sense in the middle of things. It's in the middle of this gospel that is coming into the world. The coming of Christ into the world is the coming of the gospel. The person of Christ is the gospel. When we say, what is the good news we have for you? What is the good news we have for our neighbor? The good news is Jesus himself. Jesus, what he has done. He died as a sacrifice for the sins of the world so that all who believe in him may be saved. And the coming of Christ is followed by the spread of the gospel. This includes both the gospel's spread throughout the world and and God's preparation of hearts. God is preparing the world. God's preparing the world at the time of Luke. God's preparing the world today for the coming of the gospel. Christ came to his own. He came to the people of Israel to call them to himself. It was the task of his disciples, now apostles, to bring the word of the gospel to Jerusalem, to Samaria, and the world. Luke sends this book both Luke and Acts, as a letter to Theophilus. This is a man who is likely Greek or of Gentile origin. Some have suggested that he might not even be a Christian at this moment, but rather an interested outsider. Luke is participating in this spread of the gospel, bringing the order of peace and holiness that Christ has inaugurated. When C.S. Lewis spoke of the longing, the longing that's in the heart of man, the longing for holiness, he used a German word, sensucht, that describes this deep inner longing for something that man doesn't have. Man hasn't found what he is looking for. And that word wraps up all the desire of mankind for righteousness, freedom, and honor. Now, mankind doesn't necessarily understand the problem, sin. 
He knows he's missing something. And the gospel, the gospel is the answer to this deep longing in the human heart. In this way, it is, it is possible to see Christ as not only fulfilling the words of the Old Testament, but he is also fulfilling the desire of the Gentiles. Christ is the desire of the nations, even when they reject that truth. All the world's religions, apart from Christianity, they're fundamentally tragic. They're without hope. What hope is there in in Buddhism, where your hope is to lose consciousness in the greater consciousness? What hope is there in Islam, where where God is fundamentally capricious? That is, he is all-powerful, but there's no constancy in his expression of love and mercy. Further, in Islam, the joys of heaven are not described as a wedding feast, a place where we may see and enjoy God, but are fundamentally carnal, fleshly, primarily appealing to the male appetite. What hope is there in the gospel of the secular world, where your death is no different than the death of a dog, where you, your own self, can be changed as easily as putting on a Sunday suit. Your identity is not held in Christ or or even handed down through family or country, but is rather invented by your own capricious self. There's no hope in these things. They offer an allure, but it's false. It's empty. No wonder we have found a, a cry for peace for stability, for honor, for righteousness, a desire for a peaceful kingdom in the art and philosophy of this world. The men of this world are not free. They're they're in darkness and they believe the lie. That's why the coming of the gospel is so important. We are called to remember and to pass it down, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. Our Lord has come to heal this world, not through the sword, not through philosophy, not through politics, but through one thing, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, God spreads the gospel through Luke's inspired account. We're going to first see that this is an orderly account, and second, that this is a certain account. Luke was a highly educated physician, the writer of this gospel. Scholars recognize that he uses the Greek of the highly educated in writing this gospel. He's known to be the companion of Paul on his missionary journeys. Just as some will argue that Mark wrote for Peter, some have seen a connection between Luke and Paul. Luke is writing as both a companion and a student of the Apostle Paul. In Luke's gospel, we find a greater recognition of what is going on in the the greater world at the time of Jesus. We We have hints in Matthew and Mark but we don't have the same degree of of time given to putting Jesus' ministry into a world context. 
While Matthew and Mark focus on the affairs of Israel, Luke puts things into the context of kings and emperors. In the Bible's language, Luke puts the work of Christ into the context of the oikumene. The oikumene, that's a Greek word. The oikumene is the Greek word for the civilized world as opposed to the barbaric nations on the edge of civilization. Germanic tribes in the north, Parthians in the east, and African kingdoms in the south. 150 years ago, we would have experienced Europe and North America, the west, as our oikumene. Today, the lines, are not, of course, are not so easily drawn. However, in the New Testament, the oikumene is the Roman world. And we need to go back to Daniel 7 to understand what is going on within that world. In Daniel 7, as well as other places, God shows Daniel that the exile of Israel is a prelude to a new world order. And this new setup begins with the empire of Babylon, and that's succeeded by Persia and Greece. And then finally, we have the Romans set up. The primary setting of the people of God is no longer the kingdom of Israel, but a world empire. And this oikumene served a double purpose. For one, it was a preparation of the world for Christ. God scattered the Jews throughout the empire of Persia, Greece, and later Rome, in preparation for the coming of Christ. We see that in Isaiah 55 and 56. Following the return of the exiles, there was a new joy, a new joy in the world, and a new new joy that was pictured for the Gentiles. God gives Jerusalem explicit promises in Isaiah 54. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. Here's a promise to the Gentile who's excited about what God is doing in Jerusalem. Now, because the foreigner is compared to the eunuch here, we know that these are not Gentiles that were circumcised, Gentiles that have become Jews. The assumption is that they are not free to come and sacrifice, just as the eunuch is unable to sacrifice to the Lord, unable to come into the temple. Rather, these are friends to the Jews who minister to the Lord, who observe the Sabbath, in hope of the coming of Christ, but are not necessarily circumcised so that they actually join in the worship of the Jews. God gives these a promise that he shall not separate them from his people. He is going to unite Jew and Gentile. And the great mystery of how he will do that is found in Jesus Christ. So it's a preparation for the gospel. The Gentiles hear about what God's doing among the Jews. 
The Gentiles are excited about what God is doing among the Jews. And they come and talk and befriend the Jews. We, we can think of somebody like Cornelius, who supports the synagogue in his area. But the Oikumene also serve the purpose of preserving the Jews. The empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome were God's covering, a safe place for the faithful Jew to wait upon God's plan. Within that empire, he was called to hold fast to God's covenant and to provide a light to the nations around him, pointing to the coming of the kingdom of God. It's in that context that Christ comes into the world. But it's also, you know your Gospels, you know that it's also a time where the people of God have fallen into sin again. Just as they did at the time of Samuel and David. Just as they, as they did at the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah. As a whole, the people of God have wandered and they are not looking for the right things anymore. They are not exemplifying the peaceful kingdom that God has called them to. They are not prepared for the message of hope and the freedom that Christ brings. Now, as we approach Luke's gospel, we need to be aware that the book, the book of Luke and the book of Acts are one book with two parts. We often don't think that way because they're separated by the book of John in our Bibles. But when Luke refers to his, to his labors about the things accomplished among us, he refers not only to Christ's work while on this earth, but his work through the apostles empowered by his spirit in the book of Acts. The coming of Christ is followed by the coming of the church. It's all about how the gospel, Christ died and rose again, Christ is Lord, is brought into this world. Luke begins his gospel with a reference to the many who have written about the works of Christ in his church. It's not surprising that the events that occurred in Christ's life and in the early days of the church inspired many accounts within the early church. Israelite culture was centered on the written word. If God did something new, especially something as world-shattering as sending his son to die as a sacrifice for the sake of the world, that thing must be written down. Now, Luke does not necessarily criticize these other writings. Rather, he places his own work in the midst of these other writings as one account among many. Now, Luke's work is inspired, but he is not attacking the witness of the gospel from these other sources. He also desires to bear witness to the work of Jesus Christ. Like them, he received this news from eyewitnesses and the ministers of the word. Perhaps he wishes to correct some of these things in these other reports, but ultimately he wants to confirm them through his writing. There's something to learn here. Luke's simplest desire seems to reflect that of Paul in Philippians, where he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. If we're honest, we have to admit it's hard to know how exactly to take Paul's words here. But there's a general truth here. We should be happy to see the work of the gospel continue so far as it points to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Think for a moment about the thousands of tracts and books and sermons that are available for consumption today. Often our first desire is to criticize. They didn't get this quite right. I can do better. In Luke, we find a better way. Our first reaction should be joy that the truth of Christ's word continues to go out. The work of the gospel, the truth that Christ is king, continues to find its way in this world through the mouths of all types of people. Now, this shouldn't give any cover for those who claim that Christ is not God or whose whole ministry is devoted to misusing the gospel for the sake of controlling people or getting the money flowing into their ministry. However, this should give us a bigger perspective on how to treat the vast quantity of literature that is out there summarizing, teaching, and exhorting the world to come to Christ. Neither does this take away our call to integrity in the way we explain the scriptures. We can honor the efforts of others while seeking to build on their work and teach the gospel with greater accuracy. Verse 3 demonstrates the seriousness with which Luke undertakes the work he plans to hand to Theophilus. He does two things in this work. He has followed all things closely for some time. This can also be explained as he has examined things closely. Luke has spent time with the scriptures. He spent time with Paul, with gathering accounts from, from other eyewitnesses. Considering what we find in, in Luke and Acts, he's probably spent some time with, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and others who participated in Jesus' ministry. He has looked to the ministers of the word. The word here for ministers can actually be translated guardians. Luke has spent time with those who are tasked with guarding the word. And this, this probably refers to the apostles. You can think of 1 Timothy where Paul talks about guarding the deposit that has been passed down to Timothy. That means that ministers of the word are called to make sure the church remembers and continues to put into practice the law of Christ. In the same way, we, in passing down the word and bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, are called to spend time under the word so that we grow in understanding. That's why we don't just pick anybody who feels a call within himself to be a minister of the word. Rather, the selection process takes time. Sometimes that is painful, but ultimately it's good 
for the church of Christ. The second thing Luke will do for Theophilus, and by extension for us, is give us an orderly account. Now, sometimes on an initial reading, Scripture can feel weird and foreign to us. How do all these things fit together? However, the more we find time to spend in Scripture, the more the truths of Scripture come to the surface, the more we see the structure of Scripture, the orderliness of Scripture. That's what Luke is doing. He's carefully writing the account found here to show Christ and to show his church. Now, Luke uses his sources to put together an account of Jesus that will highlight different things than Matthew or Mark did. We'll mention one of those things that is really important in the book of Luke and Acts. Luke particularly highlights how Jesus has come for the poor. Now, that word poor can refer to those who are actually poor, physically poor, those who are oppressed, those who are sick and maimed. And it can refer to Gentiles. In the beginning of Luke, we're shown that the type of people that Jesus is born to, though not necessarily financially poor, are not the elites of Israel either. We see throughout Luke a promise that Jesus has come particularly to feed the poor. Throughout Luke, we see a table. There's a continual theme of eating together at a table, whether it's Jesus and sinners, Jesus and Pharisees, or Jesus and disciples. As we mentioned, compared to the Jews, the Gentiles are also poor, spiritually poor. We saw that in Isaiah 56. The Gentiles do not yet have the same status as Jews before God. Jesus has come to fulfill the promises found in Isaiah 56. He will give the Gentiles an opportunity to leave behind their poverty and fully enjoy the riches of God's blessing in Christ, fully enjoy the blessings of the covenant. For those Gentiles who hold to God's covenant, God will add them to his holy mountain and they will have equal spiritual riches to those of the Jews in Jesus. This brings us to the character of Theophilus. We've already talked about him a little bit. This is the man who Luke is writing this account for. We have no idea who he is, although there are many guesses. His name is significant, though. It means lover of God. We don't really know why he was named that, but his name bears witness to a desire to learn about the things of Christ. Especially in the book of Acts, we see that God is preparing the ground for the coming of the gospel, and this is revealed in a name like this. As we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, God's already working in the darkness that people are in, so that when the light of the gospel comes, as many as those who are predestined to eternal life will believe. That's a great comfort to us in Winnipeg as we seek to be means for the coming of the gospel. Now, we're no longer at the beginning of, of the story. We're 2,000 years in. In Canada, 
we're growing through what we we're going through what we might call a gospel recession. But we can trust that God will continue his work as the word goes out. The word that comes from God's mouth will not return empty. The word will, will bear the fruit that God desires. Not necessarily what we desire, but certainly what God desires. We're here to bring the word to those hearts that God prepares. Brings us to our second point, a certain account. It's because even though we see the marks of the man God used to write this gospel, a man who was highly educated in Greek, had a sharp, orderly mind, was a companion of Paul, and brings out many of the themes of, of Paul in, in this book. Even though we can see all those things in the, in the book of Luke and Acts, we know that there's more going on. It's God who is empowering Luke through the Holy Spirit to write down these words. It's God who is writing this book. That's why Luke adds those words in verse 4. He is writing this account so that you may have certainty, certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. At one level, Luke is pointing to his scholarship, his careful examination of the sources for this gospel. But we know enough today that even the best scholarship can be flawed. Luke, however, shows confidence that the work he is doing will add certainty to the various accounts that Theophilus has received. The longing in the heart of Theophilus will be answered by the certainty of God's work in Jesus Christ. Luke may even refer to confirming the Gospels of, of Matthew and Mark. God often confirms his words with other words. God chose to write four Gospels, and each Gospel confirms and expands upon the Gospel that came before. We know that Matthew and Mark were written before Luke, and Luke is likely using them in, in writing this Gospel. He may even refer to them as, as the guardians who have handed down this word. Luke is going to expand on those things that Matthew and Mark have taught, and he is going to provide an overall account for Theophilus that will strengthen his faith in the other things that he has heard so far. So God assures us again of the certainty of his word, and particularly the certainty of the gospel. Christ became man lived among us, suffered, died, and was buried. As Luke says, all of Scripture points to these truths. Christ was raised on the third day and ascended into heaven at the right hand of God. Believe in him. That's the whole of the gospel. And God gives us the Scriptures to give us the why and the how of that truth, to strengthen our hearts for his coming. That gospel continues to go out today. We hear reports in far-off lands, nations that are still for the first time being reached for the sake of Christ. God continues to work in mysterious ways. 
Why was the gospel so successful in South Korea, but never made inroads in Japan? Why are Canadians today so apathetic to the gospel? How is it that our friends and neighbor welcome the slavery that is behind the lies of our secular culture? We wait on the Lord. His word will not return empty. What we know is that we have the desire of the nations. We have the desire of the nations, Christ. And we need to shine his light so that those whom the Lord has called will come to his holy mountain. God continues to gather the foreigners, the eunuchs, and the outcast. You shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. That's a description of the joy in finding peace with God. He continues to preach the gospel all throughout the world through the ministers and the guardians of the word. The one who holds to the covenant that God has declared on the cross of Christ will not be separated from the people of Christ. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's respond to that word by singing from Psalm 61, Psalm 61, verses 1 through 3.